podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. So it's uh, all for play for still? I think so. Do you want to bet against us? Hello, Aston Villa fans, and welcome back to For the Love of Paul McGrath podcast, a wonderfully special For the Love of Paul McGrath podcast, where we get to welcome in the wonderful Paddy, as always, but also the main man, Tony Daly, is here with us today, guys. Absolutely absolutely chuffed to bits to interview Tony. Tony has a wonderful new book coming out uh, called The Daily Record. Uh, you will be able to see the links for it will be in the... Um, in the description of this podcast as well. And uh, I'm just delighted to chat to somebody that I grew up looking at, tearing it up down the wing for Aston Villa. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Good evening, Neil. Good evening, Paddy. I've been looking forward to this. It'll be great speaking to you both. <laughs> Tony, I must say, I you're the second fastest thing I've ever seen in an Aston Villa jersey. And I say the second fastest thing because I have a 10-month-old daughter who has just begun crawling and getting up and shuffling around the things. And... With all due respect to you, you were fast, but my God, I know no speed when I see this this blur of, of a Villa jersey going past me. So, uh, yeah, it's the fastest thing I've seen anyway in a Villa jersey. But, um, yeah, listen, look, as I say, you've got you've got a book out and uh, it's going to be uh, it, it's available for pre-order at the moment to be shipping in October, which we're all excited about. And it's available on morganlawrence.co.uk. You'll be able to find it there, which uh, we will, as I say, have links up uh, later on uh, in this podcast and in the description. But, um, yeah, we just wanted to really come out and get you on and chat to you about uh, about your time in Aston Villa and your time in football in general, because it was a uh, I think I think everybody will 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 see with great with great gusto, gusto that you've been remembered fondly within the game uh specifically for that flair that you used to play with down the wing um, and and not only that but i think yourself and patty have been acquainted with each other previously uh at games as well when you still do and you still make it to villa park as well absolutely yes i've sat in the holt uh, a few times with paddy as well cheering the team on Giving the team some stickers, usually it makes a change. So I know, I know, I know the players feel. Get my own back from the stickers. Sometimes get in there as well. That wasn't performing. No, I just, know, Tony. Tony, you're way too nice to be given yeah. a stick. Yeah. <laughs> Tony, Tony is an absolute gentleman. Neil, he's the he's the nicest guy you'll ever meet. He's absolutely incredible with with, with anybody who comes. He's very generous with his time, and uh, I suppose the day that we 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 stood together on the whole end um, when. The Scottish Cafu scored that outrageous goal, and of course, me being me, jumped on top of Tony Daly. And at the end of the game, he he turned to me and he says, "Having a bit of a problem with my back the last few weeks." And I was like, "Oh my god, I'm ever jumping on top of him and making it worse." It was an amazing day, wasn't it? I mean, especially uh, beating the Blues as well. And a fantastic goal because we were virtually, and he was, he came running in our direction as well. I mean, as yeah. I said, it's, it's an amazing feeling. You, you know, you, you get a sense. Um, having played and appreciating the fans there, scoring in the whole team as well, but to be part of it as well, you know, the other side down, you know, a massive Villa fan, um, never denied that. And it's a team of supporters as a kid. And to go to the other end now where, you, where you know, you, you finished in football and you can watch the game as a fan. And I do, you know, cheer. And I'm upset when the team don't play well as well, as well you know. But I do put a different perspective on it as well because having been there and the team's not performing, 
not for one minute you hear me saying that you know he he that particular player uh, didn't try or anything like that. Yes, I'm first to say he had a really poor game, you know, but there's reasons for it. But you know, uh, having uh, put the shirt on and put the shirt off Aston Villa, I can I have to go and tell you that I've never played with any player who hasn't tried, performed badly, yes, but never not tried. Yeah, and you've translated that, and I think that's very, very apparent because uh, you know. Many of the time have we turned on Villa TV and we watched highlights and yourself and Mark uh, Mark Regan have been there and given a uh, very very good um commentary and uh, an analysis on games as well. So it's great to great to hear that as well. Uh, you know when you're not in the halt and getting jumped on by uh, loutish <laughs> Irish men, uh, even if it is one of the best days of his life, uh, he still shouldn't be jumping. Paddy, we'll have to we'll have to have a discussion about that after the podcast uh, for sure. And 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 Tony, you you mentioned something there which is. Which is fantastic. And I think it's something that I've got a couple of follow on questions to after this. But obviously, you're, you're, you're a Villa lad. You know, you, you um, started uh, off your career with Villa and you're, you're, you're a local Birmingham, Birmingham lad. I, you know, being honest with yourself, I suppose, or with us, should I say, really, what would, did, did you always think you were going to be a professional footballer? And I know that's a very kind of cliche question that everybody asks a professional footballer, but I think everybody would be different when you ask that question to them. But uh, what was your own view, I suppose, of football growing up? Was it more a hobby that became a, a profession or was it something that, uh, that, that you worked on, worked on and worked on? Absolutely. From the age of nine, I could categorically tell you that I wanted to be a professional footballer. And I wanted to play for Villa from that age. And ask anybody, you know, all the way through, what I'm going to do, I'm going to be a pro footballer. Excellent. And it wasn't, it wasn't arrogance or anything like that. It was just something I determined to do. And, you know, something that it was my full aim and something I believed that would happen. You know, not one time that that, that was going to happen. As I said, it wasn't arrogance. It was just uh, a belief I was going to do that. And it was hard work. It's, it's hard work simply, you know, from a youngster kicking the ball permanently against the wall, playing football 24-7. I've been, you know, um, practising my left foot, remember, from the age of 10 years of age, you know, trying to be two-footed. Um, the only thing I didn't practice was heading the ball. That was, that's never going to happen. <laughs> you, know <that. laughs> but, um, you know, but just but in general, just that, that, that belief, even a child, you know, and I think it's important that you do, that there's, there's, there's no limits. You set, you set your limits high. And that was, that was for me as well, you know, and, and obviously as well, you know, growing up as well, obviously want to play for Villa, but you know the likes of seeing the likes of uh, Kevin Keegan, Mark Chamberlain, players like that playing for England. Steve Coppel wants to play for my country, so those two were, were my biggest things. I can remember at the age of nine, ten years of age that, that that I wanted to do. I told you at the start, Neil, that he was very modest. He did score a couple of headers for Aston Villa in his time. <laughs> yeah, I did, to be quite honest with you. I mean, to be quite honest with you, I uh, talked about headers, Paddy. Was, I had, I, believe it or not, for my height and height, I did have a spring on me as well. But, you know, uh, it was a case of lack of direction. You know, I always remember, <laughs> seriously, did practice my head in and that got particularly better as well, to be quite honest with you. But obviously, it was never really my forte, to be quite honest with you. So, you know, scoring those couple of goals, as I said, was an absolute delight. Shock more than anything, to be quite honest with you. Some some oh. people might some people might say that your hair got in your eyes and that's why you couldn't head the ball. <laughs> oh yeah, if I did the hair do the night the day before. That's that might have something to do with it. No, that's not. <laughs> yeah. you, you, grew up, you, you grew up quite close to Villa Park, didn't you, Tony? Yes, I literally lived about uh, three miles from Villa Park. You know, a ten minute walk. Um, again, as I said, I always remember uh, going down uh, with my brother 
to some of the games as well. I remember uh, uh, one game we're into, which I, I was in the whole time. I didn't get to see it was uh, against Ipswich. We got beat 2-0 uh, that night. Unbelievable. The place was absolutely rammed. I remember having to be on my uh, brother's shoulders uh, to watch the game. And also many a time we used to go down on Saturday and sneak in um, <laughs> just watch the game. I that mean, was my next question. <laughs> a fair few times. And in those days as well, in at half time as well, they used to open the, the gates as well. So I used to come down yes. and watch the second half as well. Fascin fascinating. I mean, you know, when I did go down and watch the games, uh, see the whole of the game, it was the it was the, the sheer brilliance of it. I mean, even it got to a stage where I got a little bit older when I was, you know, 13, 14, 15, and I was talking about this young lad, Tony Daly. And for me, you know, uh, about once to play, I mean, the players to follow was uh, Mark Walters, um, who used to used to play for our rival school, Holtz. Even though he was four years older than me, I used to go and watch, at an early age, go and watch Mark Walters because he was an absolute legend in Birmingham. You know, he was tearing it off. Um, it was very similar to myself, coming through the ranks, playing early doors. One of the most skillful players that you know I had the pleasure of playing with, and um, I used to watch him playing in the youth team and going, you know, oh, I want a bit of that, and, and seeing the crowd when he got the ball and the buzz, and me looking, staring, and going, "Wow, this is amazing!" Transfer that, you know, four or five years down the line, I'm making my debut at 17, and you know, just a scrawny little kid running down the wing, you know, um, 100 miles an hour. You know, and every and the idea of the fans, being the fans as they suddenly when you got the ball and I could tell you now feeling the buzz as the seats went up I can honestly mm. say did you hear it yes I did the feeling the quietness and the, the gasp of you getting the ball yeah. the most inspiring thing and I can't describe how that felt it's amazing that's that's an amazing that you know what you you were very kind of it was very picturesque the way that you mentioned it there and and, and it's those little things that I suppose that you would have heard, I suppose, that fans might take for granted. The seats going up there, that's a real emotive kind of thing there, as you knew, oh, I'm doing something right here. They get off their they're on their feet. The see, you know, you you can you can you can kind of you, you can kind of sense that. That that's fantastic. Uh and, and just I suppose if we were to just reverse back a tiny little bit there, because I'm just intrigued. Uh, obviously nowadays um the scouting networks and stuff like that are God, if you're not in an academy at four years of age, nearly, or if you aren't taken straight out of the womb and in an academy, you know, your your chances of, of success are, are, are less and less. And what was kind of the pathway to being spotted or noticed or, or uh, yeah, you know, in, in the area at that time? Like, obviously, somebody like you, it was probably no secret that you were going to be signed up by Aston Villa. But what was the process to be spotted? The process is very simple. You, you, you play for your school team first, then you play for this <laughs> And in that district, there'll be scouts flying around, you know, locally. There'll be West Brom Blues, you know, the baggies. Sometimes you'd, you'd get some far fields, Blackpool or whatever. And then when you play that, when you play for your county, which was, you know, next to your, 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 uh, the next international team as such as well, that's when there's a lot of scouts about. So, you know, if you play for your county, which I play for the West Midlands, and I think at the time I was playing a year ahead of myself for that county as well. Um, that's when there was, you know, there was like a, a rush of teams coming in for you. But it was really not, not until really that I um, was involved in the so-called then academy system at that uh, probably 14, 15. And then, you know, signed uh, um, YTS at 16 years of age. So it wasn't really a state where you put spots at eight or nine like that at all then. Nothing like that at all. You did, um, you did venture to the other side of the city for a while, didn't you? Yes, yes. Um, 
I was spotted by Malcolm Beard. Eventually, eventually came over to uh, Aston Villa, and I uh, had a couple of uh, trial sessions uh, there for Blues. But I can categorically say to you, I was never, ever, ever going to play. <laughs> I was over there as well. They they initially showed an interest as well. And my ventures also took me to uh, Farfields of Blackpool as well. I remember there for, I spent a couple of days down there as well. And for me, it was it was great because it experienced uh, that time traveling, being away from home, from parents, because, you know, mm. being a lad, it was literally, you, you know, your school, playing football or in your house, but to go and just play, you know, uh, in, in a, um, what do you call it, a, a school break, uh, Easter break, going and, and train down the likes of Blackpool's race, a good experience for me. But again, for me, it was really oh, Aston Villa for me after those two experiences as well. Um, uh, playing for Villa, we used to train down. I always remember um, our train session was in a uh, car park at Aston Villa down in a little dungeon. We used to train on concrete down there. I always remember that as well. You know, there's none of these fancy academy pitches that you get now, you know, pristine, you know, beautiful pitches that you play on now. We used to train down in there as well. You, you yeah. mentioned... You mentioned YTS scheme there, and there's a, there's a, lot, a whole generation that won't know anything about that scheme. Do you do you think there's a lot of footballers out there at the moment that would have benefited from going through that system? Because I, I would have a good knowledge of it myself through friends and stuff going through it. But it, it was it was a real grounding process for someone who thought that we're going to be the next Tony Daly or or the next uh, Jack Grealish, you know. So it is a world of difference between. Uh, the 80s and 90s doing that YTS scheme and cleaning boots and sweeping the terraces and all that kind of thing. Were those the kind of things you did in the YTS scheme? Absolutely. But well, you know what, Paddy, it's uh, a different generation has completely changed and, you, you know, um, going for the system. But I would say to you, for me, it was a massive grounding in terms of that now, you know, um, I, uh, playing football, one of the professional footballer, footballer but you, when, when you, as I said, when you're sweeping the terraces, cleaning the, the clothes boots, um, having to go into a dressing room, scared to death of going to dressing room, you know, for um, the, the, the um, youth team manager at times, Brian Little, and go, I'll go and get Captain Alan Evans, the, the manager who wants to see him. And you'd be petrified to go in there, absolutely petrified. <laughs> I'd be petrified to go up to Alan Evans, no. You'd <laughs> <laughs> be take minutes trying to, you know, um, We've got the courage to go in there, but that grounding as well. But you know, from my own experiences as well, now when um, that's completely changed now, and um, you you you're hardened very quickly. You used to be on honestly, if you didn't perform in the football field, whether you're the first team or youth team, you got absolutely abused by your players. If you didn't track a man or something, you can't do that days now because they used to be literally fighting each other or get you know or too precious. I'm not I'm not speaking out of turn because it's not a done thing now, but. Me personally, in that era, it was a wonderful thing for me. But what you do get now with the, with, uh, the, the way the academy system go are technically gifted players, you know, and they, they are the great on the ball. They know the systems, play the same system, the first team from the age of 10, 11, you know, you, you know, that they, they, they know how to play football. They're technically good, whether, you, whether you're a centre half or, you know, a ball playing midfielder, you know, you, you're, you're very good on the ball, um, you know, you know your systems. You, you know about fitness, you start to learn about nutrition, looking after yourself. But, you know, sometimes as well, can that be transferred into a first-team environment? You know, there's plenty of people, you know, who stick out unbelievable players on the 23 and you put them into, you know, okay, you mentioned Blackpool or you all or go, and go, go off to Plymouth and go and play down there for, or Greensby, you know, at a three-month loan down there. That will show the true player 
can you can you cope with that men's football? Can you cope with a you know uh, a manager who's uh, uh, literally spitting at him, you know, in his face, effing and jeffing at him, you know, because he hasn't he hasn't performed, kind of thing. You know, uh, the fans giving you stick because you know you made one bad pass and stuff like that. Can you cope with that? You know, what I mean that. that if you can do that, you can be the best player in the world. And if one little thing like that upsets you, or you know, you go in shell because you can't cope with any of the things I've just mentioned, you're going to struggle to be a professional footballer. What the grounding we so sorry, Neil, the grounding we had was that you know, if you were an okay player, you'd be able to cope with that. So you could probably still make a living at the game. Doesn't mean that you're going to better players. You get better technical players here now. But the best ones that you see, you know, uh, playing now, you know, your Ronaldo's, your Messi's, and everything else, they've been through all that. They've got the they've got the grounding. They can take all that, take the stick, they take the abuse, and everything else. They're the they're the special ones. They're the elite ones that carry on and playing good football. And that's 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 interesting actually because it just popped into my mind that uh, when you were uh, and I'm really jumping ahead in my rundown sheet here now, but uh, the listeners will understand. But uh, obviously you were um, you you uh, were with Rampton and uh, you were a fitness coach. You were SNC. You were part of the SNC department uh, with Rampton. I'm just thinking there as well that I uh, there's a guy from my hometown. He's related to me. His name is Anthony Ford, and he broke onto the team. You probably would, you probably would have, have coached him. And he broke onto the, t- the Wolves team under Mick McCarthy at 17 years of age. And I think he was one of these guys that was able to just—he was able to do he was good technically with the ball. He was good level of fitness, and he was just really, really, really drilled in what he could do as well. And he's made that that career for himself. He's still playing at the moment with. Uh, he's actually playing with Wrexham at the oh. moment with the the. The Hollywood guys down at Wrexham, yeah, yeah. Yes, I remember Fordy uh, really, really well. As I said, he broke into a very, very strong Wolves team, so he done as well a lot of talent, you know, and he had a pedigree as well because you know he stayed in and around that first team as well because as I said, a lot of players at that age as well, you know, kind of drift away. Yeah, and at the pleasure room, and he, he had a very good attitude, if that makes sense. Always wanted to learn. You know, in terms of myself, working with him as well, did everything he, he did, wanted to bet himself, always wanted to go in the gym, asking questions. So he, he had a very, very good upbringing. Really good lad. Really good lad. I liked him. Excellent. We're going to bring, swing back to Aston Villa because I probably have more questions about that part of your <laughs> your your after footballing career. But uh, obviously, obviously, this podcast is named after, <clears throat> I don't know, did, do you know him? His name is Paul McGrath. Um, he's, I've he's heard about him somewhere, I think. He means yeah. <laughs> some some people know him. Some people don't. I don't know. He's 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 uh, yeah. But uh, um, yeah. So obviously you would have played in teams with Paul McGrath, and uh, you know we call him God here in Ireland. People in Birmingham call him God in Ireland. And and you know what kind of a presence was he within that dressing room? Um, and uh, was he somebody that was uh, you know that when you guys you when you guys were playing with him, you were kind of like, oh, it's okay. Paul has it. Paul's going to start this out here. It's <laughs> saying you said. Man, people, what you called him God, we called him God as well. You know, Paul McGraw was an absolutely amazing uh, player, an amazing person as well. And as you said, you, you know, he, what I liked about Paul McGraw was that he was never uh, flustered. You know, when he got the ball, never once, I think, or oh, oh, mistake here or something's going to happen because mm-hmm. 99 times 100, it was great. Whether you get the ball and the ball's in the air, chest it down, bit of play in his own box and play it out or something like that, or whether... He knew how to sense danger, where they had to go into Rose Z, he would do it. He, for me, always made the right decision. But he was, honestly, he was a one wonderful player to play with. And, he was, you know, he, he really was a true gentleman. So much time from uh, Maka. And you played with him in the 94 League Cup uh, final. And uh, 
I have to ask you this question. To this day, do you wish the ball went in off the post, or were you okay with it coming back and uh, and Daniel Ak- and, and Andrzej Kaczewski's handball handling it after Daniel Atkinson's shot? Let me say something. We won the game, and you know, and that's it was called half assist to assist, not really assist, but being involved, <laughs> involved with that. And you know, it was a fantastic uh, save he actually pulled off from me. And you know, we're talking about this now, but wouldn't it be wonderful to say you scored the third goal in the cup final against Man United? Obviously, yes. To be involved in that play and play a major part of it was a fantastic experience. As I said, uh, you look at uh, many pro players who go throughout the career and winning a medal, winning that League Cup against all the odds for me will go down a fantastic memory. You know, it was unbelievable. And is is it your is would I know this is hard to say, but obviously winning kind of a lot of people would gravitate towards that. But would have been. Your top memory at Aston Villa, or what? What would have been your top memory at Aston Villa? I suppose. Yeah, that that would, you know, as I said, that particular season where a, a team that didn't really perform in the league as well, we were uh, rank average in the league, but so something magic about the club. Uh, always remember going, you know, we had to do the hard way, you know, beating, beating some top teams away from home, you know, and the likes of Tottenham as well. But you may not define it, but uh, when we played against uh, Sunderland, always remember. Honestly, uh, Neil, we were absolutely battered. If it wasn't for Bosnich um, uh, Bosnich Bosnich that time, we could have been 3 4 nil down. He was, um, he was, I can't describe one of the best goalkeeper performances I've ever seen. And, you know, uh, Dayton was on fire that night as well, uh, that particular night. So every time we broke, we'd be scored. It was simple as that. They'd have two or three more chances. And there weren't bad misses. You know, Bosnich would clucking out the top corner. You know, he'd block one of his legs from the, uh, point blank range. It was outstanding that night. Yeah, up to the uh, possibly one of the best games I played in against Tranmere. I've been losing the first legs three-three-one uh, with that as well. Um, uh, winning that, you know, on penalties uh, again was an amazing experience. So, you know, for for me, as I said before, the, the League Cup was a uh, truly uh, that run and obviously the League Cup final was probably one uh, my true highlights for Aston Villa for sure. You, you scored the winning penalty that night, didn't you? Buzzy stole your thunder, but you scored the winning penalty. It's great, really, as it is. Uh, well, I always remember seeing that penalty as well and looking back at it. I, I was actually, you know, people say, oh, you look, you know, you look quite sure you're cocky, or not cocky, but you're quite sure that you're going to put the ball in it. You look unflustered. But I remember walking up and just seeing the side that goal became that side, became a five side goal. And, uh, you know, so that was the, one of the most nerve wrecking moments of my career trying to take that penalty. And look back when you when you look back and actually see uh, the highlights from it, and then you see good job I didn't look over, and I can see Big Ron talking to uh, Jim Walker, Big Ron shaking his head going like that, and then it's, <laughs> and it's going to miss kind of thing, and then you see uh, the fans while well, the fans going like this, like head and hand before we even took you know to the penalty. <laughs> oh, good job, I was focused and I didn't look at any direction because that would have surely put me off. <laughs> Well, us, us, us Irish, our, our most famous penalty shootout was at the World Cup in 1990. And we all did that when David O'Leary went up to take the penalty. So <laughs> we can understand where they're coming from. But it was it was a fine penalty. Yeah. Absolutely fine penalty. Um, there's someone else in that team that I'd like to pick your brains about because I don't, I don't know whether you know this, but when I was a kid, I was a Liverpool fan. But my hero was Steve Staunton. So when Steve Staunton signed for Aston Villa... So did I. So they say you don't choose your chosen. I was chosen the, the wrong way around, whatever happened. But um, Steve Staunton was, was my hero from from when I started watching football at 9 or 10, when he was breaking into that Liverpool team and playing for Ireland. 
and the two of us are left footed. So I, I like my very first game was against Manchester City. Uh, I think I told you this story. Um, my, my dad's a Man City fan and he wrote to Steve Stones and, and got us players lounge tickets. But that day we played Man City. It was early December in 1991. The, the, the pitch, the, the, the box in front of the whole end was frozen. And uh, we were 2-1 up and the ball was launched forward by Les Seeley, flicked on by uh, Cyril Regis. Yeah. This guy comes out of nowhere and a sweet wand of a left foot and blasts one into the top corner. And it was at that moment I had a new hero and that hero was Tony Daly. Do <laughs> <laughs> remember that game extremely well, as I said there as well. You know, the ball never touched the floor, as I said from Seeley's really yeah. Still flick on, and I remember the only reason I took that first time again was the conditions. They were treacherous in terms of that now. So if I tried to bring it down, it would be like it was like an ice skating rink in that area, <laughs> all the way down the pitch. Literally, if you, if you see if you watch that game, most of the players played them, you know, on the outer skirts because they're in nowadays that game would have been called off. If that makes sense, it would have been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, being my first time at Villa Park, I can tell you, I was very glad that it wasn't called off. Yeah. But after after that game, we were in we were in the players' lounge. And my dad said, look at the short that this guy is wearing. <laughs> Guess who it was, Neil? Yes, I mean, I've got a piece of my book about uh, my gear in, in there as well, yes. And and look, mine wasn't for the shock factor. Um, it, it was just it was just my personality. I, 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 I loved, loved clothes. That was my thing, you know. Um, loved the haircut, as you know, as well. But that was just my personality. And I used to get hammered by the players, hammered by <laughs> you know, what you come what's come to train or the game today or what haircut he's got. And but look, you know, that was that was just me. And I used to giggle about it and laugh. It never ever bothered me. Do you know what I mean? And it wasn't me trying to be a shock factor as well. It wasn't the case, oh, what can I do with them now? It was, that was me where it was. We talk about Steve Staunton well, he was the one who used to give me absolute dog's abuse. Dan's <laughs> <laughs> a really good friend of mine as well, and that, and that and has actually contributed to the book as well, you know. He's, he's, Very good. Some, some very good words in there and came me as well to be quite honest on top of that as well with my, about my gear but like uh, playing with Steve Staunton was as you know the same effects coming back from Liverpool as well he actually put my game to be quite honest with you you know I I was never playing played in the comfort zone he would if I did if I didn't track a man or you know two things if I didn't take the player when I should off Stan used to tear into me you know Go and take him on everything else. I didn't track my man. He would absolutely abuse me. But <laughs> conversely, you know, if I took the man and did something well, you know, he's the first one to cheer you on and encourage you. That's what I loved about him and everything else. You're always on your toes when you played there, always in your air talking to you as well. So, you know, as I said, it was, it was, it was a, a pleasure playing with him and, it, and it, it's good as well that we're still in contact and everything else. And he's a really good friend of mine as well. He's, as you said, a wonderful guy, Stan. Wonderful guy. I, I, I have no idea how you understood the Drahad accent because, uh, <laughs> like, it's, it, it's, it's completely. It should be a dialect of its own. It's, um, it should be protected under, <laughs> under the UNESCO or whoever protects those things. Because, my oh, God, it's impossible. I would say to you, Neil, that abuse is an international language. You know, you're getting. <laughs> 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 That's true. 
<laughs> as as Tony said there, um, Tony obviously does have a book coming out soon, and uh, it is for pre-order on uh, with MorganLawrence.co.uk. You will be able to find the link will be in the description below. It's going to be a fantastic read. As it says there, it's about a man who has 340 appearances, five clubs, seven international caps, but he only has one book, and you can buy that. You can get it on, on uh, pre-order, and it will be shipped in October, this coming October, and uh, can't wait for it. Really looking forward to getting our, our hands on it. Uh, as well and also also neil for those who are watching this now if you give the video a thumbs up yes and answer this question below what team did tony join when he left aston villa and we'll have another book to give away for somebody in the comments who gets that question correct we didn't want to make it too hard tony no i signed book as well it's a signed book yes it's a signed book Exactly. And now to give away the answer to the question, but what was it like, Tony? I suppose, you know, 233 league appearances, 31 goals for Aston Villa. And, you know, the, the time came when, you know, you left. And, and, and I suppose nine years at the, at the club and following them and being part of the YTS scheme, you know, maybe it might have been in your back of your head that there might be a time when I have to leave, but you had to. Uh, what's, what's kind of the thought process and, 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 and what kind of difficulties, I suppose, does that bring up? For you, did that bring up for you being a fan of the club? Yeah, uh, quite, quite a bit uh, uh, Neil. And it was practically 10 years I was there, you know, short of a couple of months, to be quite honest with you. Mm. Uh, but the, the hard bit was being a uh, massive Villa fan, being a club that I, I, I played for as a, over here, but it was for my career. I, I need I need the fresh challenge. Uh, big one had come in. I picked up a few injuries where I was before at the club, one crucial injury. Uh, big one had come in. And I wasn't a regular first-team player at that time as well. You know, I was in and out, coming back from injury as well. And and for me, the, the hard it was to, yes, you know, uh, you know, stay in the club, being playing a big part, you know, being part of the squad at the time because I didn't know which way my knee was going at that particular time. And that's the first thing you're thinking about. Um, I, I felt it's best I need a fresh challenge. But, you know, the big factor for me was um, uh, Graham Taylor, um, I had no intention of leaving the club at that particular time, but you know, for me, it was a fresh challenge. Going Taylor came along, um, and having played with him, um, always got the best out of me. And, you know, he was he was somebody you would actually die for to play for in terms of the way he was was with me. Um, I get opportunity to go and talk to him. And I remember going uh, uh, to his house uh, in sort of Coldfield, which was literally just you know down the road from me, ten a ten minute drive from me. And meeting there with my agent, and I was there. Or I'll, I'll tell you not, it must have been three and a half, four hours talking football. You know, uh, talking football, talking about what he's going to do to the club, where the club's going to be. And to put on, it, 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 it sold me. I was literally, I wouldn't like to go in there as a courtesy and see because I did want to stay, uh, for, you know, stay at Villa because that that big wrench of leaving. You know, it was a long, long time as far as I wanted to do. I want to stay there, you know, for full my career. But I realised that I, I still had an ambition. I still wanted to, you know, uh, play Premier League football. As far as I was concerned, I was going to be there for one season, playing uh, Premier League football, um, you, you know, and uh, playing the best football out of the manager who got the best out of me. And then you followed him to Watford as well afterwards because, uh, so, and, and, you know, the reason I bring that up is it just goes to show the measure of the great man, uh, the, the Graham, Ta Graham Taylor was. Um, obviously, you know, when you have that simpatico with a manager, you know that there's a manager that's got your back, 
fact that he signed you twice, three times, really. You played under him three times, signed you twice, you know. That's a that's a lovely kind of a mark to have of uh, what a gentleman he was. And sadly, he's no longer with us, obviously. And uh, and, and I think uh, is is consistently and will forever be mourned by the footballing fraternity from for, for that very reason. Um, you mentioned about your about about your injuries. You mentioned your knee. And injuries became a became a part. Look, as as I always say, father time is undefeated, unfortunately. And uh, sometimes injuries catch up with people. And um, uh, what what I'm getting at with this question that I want to ask here is obviously you went into the in, into strength and conditioning, you went into into the physical uh, aspect of, of the game afterwards. I can't imagine in 1998, 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002 that there were very many Tony Dailies in around the clubs. But my question is, am I wrong in that? And what was the attitude towards knee injuries back there? Was it a case of if you can play through the pain, we'll let you? Or was there very, like, obviously there wasn't as much as knowledge around them as there are now. But was that something that made you kind of think, I'd like to get involved in this strength, in fitness and strength and conditioning because I think there's a lot more to be offered to the game from that point of view? Uh, and for me, I mean, even I remember uh, Jim Walker, Aston Villa, the first time I did my cruise at Aston Villa a couple of seasons before I left. I was fascinated. I was I was one of these freaks who actually loved pre-season in terms of fitness. That was a thing for me. I, I loved running, loved training. Um, it, 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 it was my thing. You know what I mean? The fitter for me, the better. Loved being in the gym, doing strength work, all those. And I remember being injured and... Um, Speaking to Jim, he used to hate me because I'd ask him, "Oh, what's the injury? You've done your hamstring, but you know what? What muscle have I done? How have I done that? It's the bicep femoris." But I thought it was your semitendinosis all the time, semitendinosis or something like that. And I go, and and he'd be going, "Just leave me alone, please. Just want to do the do do your job." You know, I was just fascinated about the, you, you know, the injuries yeah. and how, how it was repaired and everything else. So originally, I was I was thinking about going down the, um, the physio route. But for me, the, the, the more I looked into fitness, my thing was, okay, I'm injured here. You know, what can I do to get myself back uh, uh, fitter, stronger and better than I was before? And, you know, even then I was, I was reading stuff and coming to gym and asking about this. I've read this and stuff like this and what's the thoughts on this? And, you know, it was really, really helped for me in terms of that. And then from then, from I would think whilst, whilst I was playing at 24, 25, when I finished football, I was going to go in, down the sports science route for, for, for true. For sure, and as you said uh, with that before, and for me it was quite unique going uh, going to uh, university. You know, first getting my uh, you know, and finally getting my postgraduate uh, degree, and going down that route as well because I was one of the unique few of uh, ex professional footballers who you know gone down that route from fitness pros, got getting the qualifications that I did, and um, what I did find there was the, the, the two two school of thoughts. Having moved to Sheffield United, where it's quite unique and getting what you've got with the buying with players. First and foremost, you've got an instant respect because of what you've done as a footballer. You know, because at the time, fitness coaches at that time were uh, the ones who were, I'm not winning, I'm not doing that and everything else. But, you know, they're, they're the ones that got dogs abused from the players, really, in terms of that now. But be, because of what I had achieved in the game at that time, held, held me in good stead. That was a good start for me. Only a good start because if you're not good at your job, that'll only last a week, and then you 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 know you you're gone. You're going to get it kind of thing as well. But it gave me an opportunity, you know, to for the players to get to know me and realise that you know that yes, I can do my job and I'm there. But what it does as well is that 
uh, I realised I probably uh, stood out from other sports scientists who was equally as qualified as what as myself was at, at an empathy with the footballers. You can look at data and a particular player, oh, he, he, he can run this speed or he's got this amount of endurance. And you'll see him on a football field or training field and he's not, they'd say, not trying a leg. Why is, not, why is he not doing that? Why is he not doing that? Well, as well. You know, I know there's other things that might be going on. And one of the things to do is approach the and look, you know, I've been through this, you know, speak to me. What's, what's your issue? I have that empathy with them. That's my first thing. My first thought is not trying a leg. Is there's mm-hmm. other issues there. And be and that, that kind of helped as well. And the players were very approachable because they understood that I played the game. Understood them. So that was a big factor. But having moved to balls with head of sports science, I mean, the initial thing, not in that stuff, I mean, the stick I got from the fans, I always remember, was the fact that having only put, played 20, 20 off performances, uh, appearances for over the four years, um, you know, and the, being yeah, the laughing stuff about amount of goals how could someone be so injured be our head of sports science mm-hmm. i actually thrived on that to be quite honest with you <laughs> you know because uh, any any form of adversity like that it wasn't a case of proving me wrong it was all right yeah that's no problem with that i'll show you kind of thing you know so that came that from the fans really as well as as, as well so um again it's a case of trying to win the windows over and eventually you, you do some you never will of course you aren't as well so um for me you know, uh, being an ex-footballer in the job as well, had did have his advantages. Yeah, um, uh, Tony, uh, you mentioned there obviously you know being an ex-footballer and going into the role itself, and and, and you mentioned that not a lot of uh, ex-footballers are going into that role. <clears throat> obviously, you know, I suppose. He, you, you were a black man in football, in, in the backroom team in football at that time. And, and even in, like, we're talking about what, the early 2000s, and even to this day now, we're beginning to see uh, it, it, it happen more and more, and, and I suppose it's becoming more and more prevalent. But it, there is always that question about, you know, why is, there, why is it disproportionate? Why is it disproportionate uh, in, in that aspect? And without putting you on the spot, do you, do you feel that there was ever that kind of um, disproportionality or did you ever notice any of that disproportionality when you were in the dugouts or when you were in the sports science uh, field within within your career after football? Yeah, I could tell you, so, I mean, I was at Sheffield United as well, being, and that was really a tiny staff where sports science at the time yeah. wasn't that great. And I worked with Neil Warnock, who was a fantastic man to work work for you know it was a good grounding for me for sure in terms of going on uh, to the career I had as yeah as, as a professional fitness coach um you know uh, can i just say categorically no i mean at the time when i did move to uh, wolves uh, four years later being there for 10 years you know with the likes of um um terry connor there yeah. who's manager uh, with Nick mccarthy and you know the staff there as well we oh, you know we we, we had Staff all the way through the academy, uh, uh, both black, Asian, you know, Italian, you know, there was, there, was, there, was, there, was, there, was, there was no issues in terms of that. And, you know, and I never experienced there, experienced that to be quite, quite honestly at all. There was no issues whatsoever to, to no extreme, you know, even with the other staff as well. Um, you can't have that human bond, even as a player, when you're a player as well, it's like anything else. You, 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 you look at a player, is he a good player? Yes, no, you know, is he is he a bad leg, is he a bad egg? Yes, no. Colour doesn't come to it, so you can be whether you're black or white, it doesn't that that's not the issue. If the other issues is whether for those reasons has a good personality, is he a nice guy, you know, is he is he you know, is he good at his job? And that's universal and that's the only experience I can honestly say that I've had 
you know, uh, post post football. To be quite honest with you, it's it's been an absolute pleasure. You know, the 14, 15 years I had uh, as as a fitness coach. Mm-hmm. And you've obviously started the uh, um, Seven Daily Rakora UK as well, mm-hmm. which is thriving. I can. Uh, I'd love to be able to fit into the t-shirt that you're wearing, Tony, but I don't know. For a fitness coach, I would imagine that you don't do double XL uh, t-shirts. <laughs> Uh, with a cool all sizes. Now, I mean, look, as I said to you, I mean, from a young age, fitness has, has been key to me. I mean, the biggest thing that happened to me was um, obviously when I went to Wolves uh, and uh, not being able to play, you know, four years, you're injured practically three of the four years that you were there. Yeah. And I needed a substitute, and substitute for, me, substitute for me was fitness. I couldn't be on the football field. It was, it, it was keep myself fit, keep myself healthy, and being in the gym. So that was my, that was my, you know, release as such and everything else. I couldn't play football at the time, and that's something that's been that's continued. You know, it it, it for me keep myself fit is it's a natural thing to do. It's not a heartache. It's not it's not anything. If I don't if I don't do it, it's the other way around. You know, I'll get you know, and 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 everything else. I've got to go. You know, got to go in the gym and got to do that. Uh, so for me, you, you know, it's it's not a hardship. It's something that I really really enjoy, and and as long as I'm capable to do it, I'll continue to do it. We didn't touch on your international career at all, Tony. Paddy has followed you around international in, in your international <laughs> career as, uh, as as I phoned up before, and so it would be remiss of me to ask you anything to do with your international career. So, Paddy, take it away. Well, I don't know whether you'd call it your first the England cap, but I, I was there when you you played. I think it was a there were classed as a B team, wasn't it? And you, and you played against the Republic of Ireland in Cork. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Thanks for that. I won't, I, won't, I, won't bring up, I won't bring up the fact that you gave the ball away for the third goal either. <laughs> I don't recall that. I can't remember that. At all. <laughs> um, yeah, but like you, you played in that team in Cork. Um, I can't even remember what year it was. Would it have been 1990 maybe, would it? Thank you. Yep. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the, like it, it was a team of, of incredible footballers, Tony Adams, Matt Letissier, David Batty. You know, Nigel Clough, Dalian Atkinson. Dalian Atkinson was the best player on the pitch that day. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. There, was, there was a load of Ireland players that went on to, to play in the World Cup the following year, or later that year. Yeah. So 10,000 people crammed into uh, into uh, Cork City Stadium in Turner's Cross to watch that game. And we were treated to a brilliant game. Like, it was 4-1, but it was never a 4-1 game. It was It was very, very tight. But uh, yeah, and then you were obviously on the bench when uh, Ireland played England. Then the following year at Lansdowne Road with the one all from that famous ball in by Steve Staunton to Tony Cascarino, and of course David Platt scored at the other end. So it was all Villa orientated that day. <laughs> but um, tell tell us a little bit about um, going to Sweden and and how was that experience for you? It was amazing because I actually gate crashed gate crashed the uh, Euro squad as it was at the time. So if we just go back just a little bit uh, before that, uh, Paddy as well, you know, I was involved, uh, again, nearly gate crashed in 1990 on uh, World Cup under Bobby Robson at the time. You know, eight, 90, the 89, 90 season under Graham Taylor was probably my best season ever. I was playing some unbelievable football at that time and I was involved in uh, uh, two squads, which was on the bench for, we never got under, under Bobby Robson, but, but, you know, it was very close to the squad there. But going back to Euros again, um, I think... Um, one thing that highlighted for me as well when we played um, against Inter Milan, 
and beat them 2 at home. Uh, that game as well, again, one a great night as well. Again, one of the most memorable games that I've played in as well. I did uh, half decent in that game as well. And uh, certain Graham Taylor was in the studio in ITV commentating on that game as well, you know, when they did do that type of thing as well. And, you know, as announced in the squad, um, you know, uh, I think a few months later, uh, just regarding that as well. And, you know, my England career took off, you know, um, I played a few games, extremely well in there as well, in those games as well. And literally on the top of those uh, uh, two or three games that I've played, um, I've got myself into the England squad and going to the uh, Euros um, was was good. But, you know, in that during that time as well, there was the, the difficulty with the fact that the uh, media had this agenda against Graham Taylor at the time. So, you know, uh, you know, I do go more detailed book regarding that. But, you know, at that time, I kind of spoiled that, you know, the events of being involved. Don't yeah. get me wrong, playing for your country and actually say you, 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 you played in the you know, 1992 Euros. Super, we'll never forget that. But it was kind of tarnished, really, with the way the press uh, had acted on the Grand Tail at that particular time. They they tended to do that back in that time, and thankfully times have changed a little bit. And it was refreshing to see how much they got behind the team in the Euros last year, because the minute something goes wrong, they have a tendency to to turn the knife a little bit on the manager or or find a scapegoat, you know. But I think last year it shows how far we've come in that the media were completely against the, the abuse of Bukayo Sacco and, and everybody else on, on that day. So I think the world has come a long way since 1992, I think is in short what I'm trying to say. Absolutely, mm-hmm. it is. And I think, um, and quite rightly so as well, you know, things have moved on significantly since that as well. And I think it was heart and minds. I think when Gareth Southgate uh, uh, came in and, you know, there was an open uh, quest. The players were quite free to speak to the press and they were quite open in the conversation they were having them as well. And that was refreshing as well. And, and brilliantly as well, the press responded to that. I think, hang on a minute, if we don't stitch these players up, they're going to give us exclusives. They're going to talk to us naturally, not the usual. So I remember speaking in Euro 92 and literally having a script, you know, saying neither no comments or, you know, this is what, you know, we're the actor, don't say that because we're going to twist it anyhow. You know, the press officer gave me this list of things not to do, so say, you know, because you know it's going to get twisted. But uh, just just regarding that as well, now I think the press uh, kind of loved that as well, that openness of the players and the approach they can have with the players as well. So I think that helps. So, I, you know, without doing that now, there's no need for them to, you know, try and find dirt in the players because it's a good, it's a feel good factor. England playing well at the time, you know, the, the nation were behind them. The, the, the nation I want to hear about, the, you know, really the nitty gritty of what, you know, players uh, might have got drunk in a nightclub one time and, uh, and a single lad walked out with, you know, two girls on his arms. Big deal. But, you know, in 1992, that would have been massive, massive news. They want to hear about the player, you know, about his family, about his upbringing and, you know, um, you know the charity work, all the goodness he's doing or, you know, he, he, you know, he struggles with, um, you, you know, nerves or, he's, he, you know, he's got mental health issues. The real world, what what we you know, Joe Public deal with now, you know what I mean? They are realistic, you know. Fans want to see that as well, and then to go out and see them perform and playing extremely well, it kind of brought everything together. That's what you know. That's that's how I saw it as well. I think it's fantastic. Excellent, and uh, and you know that 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 really does kind of bring it home when uh, 
you know, sometimes the emotion comes over a fan and, and, and this almost brings it back full circle, Tony, to what you said at the very, very start. When when you're commentating or when there's a fan in the stadium, sometimes the emotion can get the better of them. But it's really interesting to hear that from your point of view, that when a microphone and a camera is stuck in your face, you know, what you say can anybody can make whatever whatever they want out of what you say and and i suppose there is kind of a human element that you're only saying how you feel or you want to say how you feel but sometimes you feel that it's restrictive because of the the over scrutiny of 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 what's said that that's a really interesting part i um it's not something that i would have uh well it is something i would have thought of but it's something that i hope i can bite my tongue more sometimes when i'm talking about about footballers whether they're for aston villa or not and i can say wait a minute there's a very much a human aspect to this and the fact that this guy wants to say something and he can't say it and it's he shouldn't just say it because neil over here in ireland wants him to say x y or z yeah absolutely and i think that's freedom as well you know sometimes i think it's strange as well that you know when um you know after a game your microphone is just stuck in front of a manager, for instance, and the emotion of running high, trust me, it is as well, the frustration of it. And, you know, the manager might say something about the referee and realistically, you know, he doesn't mean that or he's just frustrated about a decision. And he's come out wrong. He's, he's, if if he, he would probably say the same thing for 24 hours later, 40 hours, still give the, the, the referee stick, but say in the right way where he's not going to get fined or, you know, with that as well. But the emotions run high at that particular time. And, you know, and I, th- and, I th- and I think as well, sometimes when I do get punished, and players as well doing that as well, it's just emotionally after the game, it's very, very difficult to support it. it really is. Yeah. Tony, just before we finish up, um, I'm going to ask you a three-question a three question salvo, and I just want one-word answers. I think I know the answers to one of them. One of them. So, obviously, yeah. we're going to keep this Aston Villa related because uh, this is an Aston Villa podcast. Favourite manager at Aston Villa? Graham Taylor. I could have nearly guessed that one myself. Um, <laughs> uh, best Villa player you ever played with? Paul McGrath. Paul McGrath, excellent. You're, you're getting all the right answers so far anyway. <laughs> and lastly, what was your favourite goal you ever scored for Aston Villa? Uh, versus Luton. Um, I'll describe it. Uh, running down the left wing, all the way around, beating a couple of players and slotting it in, just thinking it over the keeper. That would be my favourite goal. Well, I have a few, but that's my favourite one. Well, you know what, Neil... It, I, I, I know, I know from listening to Tony in the past, he mentioned Maradona as one of his favorite players. That mm-hmm. goal was the reverse side of the pitch to Maradona, but equally as good. Come on, I appreciate that, uh, Paddy. But uh, <laughs> said Mar- Maradona at the time, you know what a what a player he was, especially in that world that, that World Cup, the goals he scored. Incredible, absolutely incredible. Excellent, because I, I was expecting I was expecting it to be the the Daily Dazzler um, against against Everton, the one that made the the front well. of the of. <laughs> that, that's definitely up there as well. That's is one of my definite favourites as well. But that for me, you know, uh, and I think one scored against um, what was it West Brom in the league as league uh, FA Cup game as well. You know, my trouble was I had scored uh, quite a few decent goals. Not enough tap-ins. That was yeah. Great. There wasn't many tap-ins. <laughs> you know, instead of thirty odd goals, I could have got it could have been sixteen. Turned there if I wasn't picking my nose on the far post and you know, <laughs> and getting a few tap-ins, getting into the box as well. But you know, that's that's the way. That's the way it is. Exactly. Well, we've learned a lot about you today, Tony, and I do thank you for your time. We've learned that you pick your nose at the back post. You just said it there, and they're not my words. We've also learned that me and you have something in common, that we've both graced the field in Turner's Cross in Cork City. So uh, what could have been when I was an 18-year-old? I was... I was 
was I even 18? Yeah, I was. I think it was 18. Um, played played in Turner's Cross in a 3 0 loss, I might add, uh, but not in a uh, in an international game. Good company as it is there as well. So. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we've we've learned an absolute ton about you today, Tony. And for everybody who is listening as well, this uh, Tony does have a book out at, or it's coming out at the moment. It's available for pre-order. It's available on Morgan Lawrence Publishing Services. You get it on morganlawrence.co.uk. And uh, as I say, that is available now. You can go and you can sign up for it for pre-order. Um, there are signed copies there. And also it will ship in October. And with that, we also have a giveaway, guys. All you need to do is give it a thumbs up on on this video and you need to comment below and answer the question the terribly difficult question of who did tony daly leave aston villa to join in 1990 what year was it 1994 so who did he leave aston villa to join what club did he leave aston villa to join and if you can't answer that after listening to this podcast you weren't listening hard enough so go back and listen to it again <laughs> or buy the book no actually go and buy the book because you weren't listening that's what you need to do uh, so pop that in the comments and we will give out a um, a copy and that will be given out uh, before the game on, on, on Friday. So Thursday evening, we will be announcing the winner for that one for sure. Um, Tony, I really appreciate appreciate your time today. We've 52 minutes of absolute, you know, riveting stuff. And I could have talked to you for another 52 minutes. But as I say, I can't wait to get my hands on the book. So thank you very much for your time, Paddy. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, Tony. I look forward to bumping into you the next time I'm over. And uh Thanks for everything. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Paddy. Thank you, Neil, as well. It's been a pleasure speaking to you both. And it's your it's your turn to jump up in his back next time as well. You know, whenever, <laughs> whenever. So uh, I, I'll hold him to that as well. I'll hold him to that. So that's been... <laughs> that's been fantastic once again the book is available on morganlawrence.co.uk the link will be in the description here as i say there's tons and tons of uh, of content in there and i can't wait to get my hands on it even if even if it is for some ribbon that stan staunton gives him in the, in the book <laughs> as well because he did mention that i know my ears pricked up when i mentioned that because uh, as i say i can't imagine that is steve staunton giving out to too many people with that dry head accent so i'm <laughs> going to read it in a dry head accent when i do read it when it is in your book but i appreciate appreciate your time please go buy that book and uh and thanks everybody for watching today we will be back again with more podcasts in the future so join us here on for the love of paul McGrath podcast and until then all that's left to say is up the villa see you guys up the villa up the Podcast Network.